We come this morning to the second to last book of the Old Testament, to the 11th of 12 of the Minor Prophets, to the 11th of the Book of the Twelve. We've been talking for almost three months about this section of our Bible. At the end of our Bibles, the last 12 books get collected into kind of a category called the Minor Prophets. Minor not because they're eh, not important, but minor because, generally speaking, uh, they are, are smaller compared to prophets like Isaiah. Uh, or they're also called, besides minor prophets, the Book of the Twelve. That's generally how uh, they're referred to uh, by the Jewish people. Uh, it's one book with, of these 12 smaller little books. And, and that is, as you see on the screen, uh, the Book of Zechariah. So last week, before I was sick, uh, when I was starting to work on this message, uh, one of my sons asked, Dad, what you, what's your sermon on coming up? And I said, Zachariah. And my son said, oh, the little guy who climbed into the tree to see Jesus. I said, no, that's Zacchaeus. To which the other son admitted right away, I was thinking the same thing. Um, and so I'm okay as a dad, I'm okay as a pastor, even though they confuse Zacchaeus with you know, Zechariah, it's, it's tricky, you know, the Bible names. And so uh, we had a good laugh about that. In fact, then last night, um, uh, I was asked again, hey, what's the sermon tomorrow? And this time I said, Zacchaeus, just to see if they remembered uh, the conversation from the week before. So it's not Zacchaeus, uh, it is Zechariah. The other confusing thing about Zechariah, uh, Zechariah is the name of John the Baptist's dad. So like Zechariah was a common name. So we're not talking about Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed into the sycamore tree to see what he could see. We're not talking about uh, Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, uh, but Zacchaeus, or Zechariah. Now I'm going to mess myself up all morning long. Uh, yeah, the minor prophet Zechariah. But here's the thing about Zechariah, as one writer put it, Zechariah is the most difficult minor prophet it's one of the hardest books to understand in the whole Bible. And so I was thinking, God, why couldn't Adam Peacock have had this one? And I could have had Haggai uh, and so on. Um, basically, every commentary, every reference work said something similar. Zechariah is, uh, is difficult. Part of what makes it difficult, like these are minor because they're generally smaller, Zechariah is 14 chapters if we just started reading it, we would get done about the time you're ready for coffee and um, a sugar cookie. It would take over 30 minutes uh, to read in one sitting. Um, it's actually very similar to the book of Revelation. It's got all kinds of futuristic prophecy and different things. In fact, uh, the genre of literature, it's, it's, it's a prophet, yes. There's prophetic elements as in like the other uh, Old Testament prophets, but it has this futuristic prophetic stuff to it as well. Um, it's weird, it's difficult, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, in it this morning. If you haven't already, open to Zechariah, um, second to last book of the Old Testament before Malachi, which uh, Lord willing, we will be in next week and we will finish our series. And then we, just so you kind of know what's uh, the plan, uh, December eighteen. Uh, and then on Christmas morning, as we gather, we will spend those two Sundays looking at um, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, because what's interesting about Matthew, uh, Matthew uses this word a bunch of times where he says, and so it was fulfilled what was spoken by a prophet. 
And since we've been in the Minor Prophets, I thought, well, let's spend our Christmas uh, weeks looking at Matthew's uh, accounts of prophetic prophecy being fulfilled. So that'll be, again, December 18 and 25. And while I'm thinking of that, so Christmas morning, we will gather. Uh, we'll be in here. We'll have everybody in here, all the kids. We'll do lots of singing, and we'll have a shortened service, but we'll have a good uh, worship gathering on the Lord's Day, which this year happens to also be December 25, 10 o'clock like normal. Uh, plenty of time for presents and whatever else uh, you all do. I hope you'll be here. If you're in town and if you have company uh, with you, maybe come and bring them with you. Okay, so Zechariah is where we are. You're, you've turned there. And now let's take a look at verse 1. And I have verse 1 on the screen, so you can look in your Bible or look on the screen as well. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius or Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo. So all of that simply orients us to who this guy was. And we know from Nehemiah, we know from other accounts, Zechariah was a priest, most likely, because of kind of the lineage there. He was uh, this, this son of Bacariah, this grandson to Edo. Um, he was a member of this prominent priestly family who had come back from Babylon. And as I mentioned, with my joke about uh, Adam Peacock, having Haggai, um, these guys were contemporaries. They were there together, along with another name you may have heard, we'll see it this morning, Zerubbabel. He was like the mayor of Jerusalem. All this is about 538 BC, before Jesus. So God's ch- the children have been in exile, and now they are back, and they are tasked with rebuilding the temple and getting Jerusalem back together. And, uh, and so they, they are working on this. Zechariah's name, uh, you see on the screen, it means Yahweh remembers. If you know someone named Zechariah, you can tell them, hey, your name, do you know what it means? It means God remembers, Yahweh remembers. Adam Peacock, a few weeks ago, he, he did a great job. I encourage you, if you missed that message, go online and listen. But uh, as, he, as he worked through Haggai's prophecy, his three points were that the prophecy of Haggai reorients us. It's all about reorienting to obedience, to God's presence, and to consecration, to our our lives being uh, given to God. And in many ways, that could be the same outline for this uh, very weird, very major minor prophet of Zechariah. It it is a reorienting to all of those things. God's people have been back for now 20 years, and they have begun to work on the temple, but it's, it's moving slowly. I mean, have you noticed all the construction in our city? It seems like every angle you go somewhere, there's a new building. I mean, somewhere there's something going on, and we can feel like stuff moves slowly. I know if you drive your car in our city, it sure feels like five years now, city, you know, put some of that PG&E money to work to fix our roads, and they don't seem to, and who knows why. But if we think construction goes slow, just imagine, like, this 2,500 years ago, no tractors and bulldozers and machines and just people doing work. It, it would move slowly, uh, but, but it's, it's kind of going real slowly, and they're discouraged about all this. We'll kind of talk about that a little bit more in a, in a little while. Um, and God is concerned about the temple being rebuilt, most definitely. But as we're going to see, and, and as Adam pointed out, 
God is always concerned with the heart. He's concerned about what's going on on the inside. Not, not merely that they build this structure, uh, but he's concerned about what's going on in their heart, in their love for him, their, their consecration and obedience to him, um, especially as it gets directed at, at, at others. And so, in, in fact, I'm going to jump for a moment here into Zechariah 7 and 8. I've put these verses on the screen again if you just want to glance there. Zechariah 7, verses 8 through 10 say, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. And then, in the next chapter, chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. We might say it like this. Um, if, if Haggai was about encouraging them to get back to work on the temple, all the while being reoriented again to obedience and God's presence and consecration, um, Zechariah is encouraging God's people to uh, repent, return. We're going to see that in a moment. Return and renew their covenant relationship with God. And it, it shows itself in how they treat people especially as as are listed on those two passages, groups we might call disadvantaged. God says, show your sincerity of your commitment to me for how you treat people. Yes, the temple matters, this this building, which itself is a symbol of God's presence in in that time. But but your, your commitment to me needs to not just be manifested in getting a structure rebuilt, but in, in how you love and treat and, and show um, your, your commitment to me to others. And it's interesting, commentators note that outside of these passages here in both 7 and 8, and there's a few other verses in these chapters, Zechariah doesn't have a lot of do this from God. Again, there's verses here in these chapters, but again, it's this big book, so to speak, and most of it has to do with not God telling his people what to do, but is God showing them who he is and what he is doing. Zechariah shows God's people and us all these years later who God is and what God is doing. So let's look together at the opening verses then, chapter 1, verses 2 through six. So after we learn who Zechariah is, as we mentioned, then beginning of verse two, we kind of have the introduction. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? 
but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So Zechariah right there in verse two says, return to me. And that's Old Testament language, ESV translation for the word repent. I was having a conversation this week with someone about what what does it mean to repent? That's not a word we use a lot in like non-religious contexts, but but it means to turn. It, It means to change behavior, but not just external behavior, not just behavior modification, but but from within, a true desire uh to to do uh, the, something opposite. And so we, we can say all of the Christian life, and this is what Martin Luther famously said in the first of the 95 Thesis, that for the Christian, life is about repentance. Every day, we, we need to return to God. We don't just drift toward God. You ever notice that? In fact, we, we drift the opposite way. The Christian life is about being deliberate. And, and we've got... The spirit in us, we'll see that in a moment, actually from Zechariah. God doesn't just leave it to us, uh, but, but, but daily we are to, Lord, I'm yours. Incline my heart to your testimonies, the psalmist says. That, that's a prayer of saying, I want to repent, to return to you. Because again, we, we, will, drift, we will drift the opposite direction. And so Zechariah is saying, uh, God is saying to God's people, and even to us, that word is still there. Return, return, return. Where are those prophets? They're, they're not anymore. Your fathers, they're gone too. But my word, my word overtook. In other words, my word lasts. And I told you, if you didn't obey, these consequences would happen. And so Zechariah, again, is calling God's people who are back from captivity now, working at rebuilding, to also return to him in, in their hearts. Now, I mentioned again, how difficult and weird Zechariah is. But what's, what's fascinating, um, the New Testament quotes Zechariah quite a bit. Um, one study found that um, it's possible that there's some 67 different places um, where, where 54 passages from Zechariah are echoed. So not, not direct quotes. There's a dozen or so of those at least, but possibly um, 54 passages in Zechariah that get echoed where there's just these hints that, oh, wow, you know, was John talking about what Zechariah said? So the New Testament authors, they, they love this strange, weird book, um, and it comes up quite a bit in Revelation uh, as well, which again makes a lot of sense because it very much feels like the Old Testament version of uh, Revelation, as I mentioned. Uh, if you look at the screen, the outline uh, of Zechariah can pretty easily, as strange as it is, uh, into three sections. So the first section has eight visions. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in, in that area. Um, so that's, that's kind of section one. Zechariah is given these eight visions. Uh, then section two uh, are two sermons, uh, which kind of follow or uh, flow from a question about fasting, but, but kind of two sermons happen there in chapters 7 and 8. And then the third section um, are, are two 
oracles, and, and these are undated. So in other words, as, as we said already, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai uh, and Zerubbabel, and so a lot of what he had to say falls in line right about the time, those 20 years after God's people have returned. But, but then it seems that possibly the stuff he said in, in that section three, that maybe those come later. So his span of writing, all, that's all I'm saying, um, could be quite, quite lengthy, um, but those oracles at the end are undated. We, we can't find a, a date for where they fall uh, historically, but, but they're of him um, and, and so forth. So now, section one, the, the eight uh, visions. Um, they are arranged in, in what is called a chiastic structure. So if you look at the screen again, um, a chiastic structure is not something we do a lot in, in English, but in the Old Testament, this happens quite a bit. So if you think of an X, okay, an X uh, has these two points and then come together and then go back out, and uh, it's called chiastic because the, the Greek letter ki, I know it doesn't sound like X, but it, it looks like an X to us, uh, but it's, it's this, this structure um, where... Um, Basically, and you see it in poetry where, where an author will say something and then there's a parallel later on and then something else and then a parallel and it moves toward the middle, which is the heart of things, the, the meat of things. Uh, we typically, in our way of communicating, we make our main point first, right? And then we kind of subpoint it out or we build anticipation and then there's the main point. But uh, they would often write in such a way and, and with poetry, uh, have these parallel things that go on, but it kind of builds to a crescendo in the middle. Some of you will remember several years ago, a friend of mine preached and did some teaching here at Soma. His name's Joe. And when he talked about chiastic structures and that, that X in the middle, he showed this picture, um, which is going to be right there. And now you're all ready for lunch. Uh, but But if you think about a sandwich or a burger, right, you've got you got bread on both ends, and then you got some vegetable, right? But the middle is where it's at. And if you're a vegetarian, that could be an impossible burger. So it works out uh, either way, but, but it's what's in the middle that, that counts, okay? Um, so let me talk to us about these, these visions and what we see in section one. So, um, in fact, if you have a Bible... One of the things it's always good to do is sometimes flip and, and turn and understand. So my Bible, for example, at Zechariah 1.7 has a heading. It says, a vision of a horseman. Okay, do you have that, some of you? Okay, yeah. So those are not inspired. Some editors put those headings in, but, but they help us, okay? So if you just kind of start turning, you see there, a vision of a horseman. At verse 18, a vision of horns and craftsmen. Verse 1, chapter 2, a vision of a man with a measuring line, okay, and, and so on. So these visions uh, make their way all the way through uh, chapter 7, okay? So here's how this chiastic structure or hamburger uh, picture works. Vision 1, which is chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, and vision 8 which is chapter 6, 1 to 8. So, okay, again, poetry here, making a point eventually in the middle, but on the edges. Vision 1, chapter 1, vision 8, chapter 6, both talk about 
colored horses and, and these four groups of horses and, and all, of, again, this is where it's weird and it's like the book of Revelation, right? The purpose is that um, these, these horses and these horsemen, they're going throughout the whole earth and again, the backdrop is the building of the temple and what, what it seems that God is saying through these four horsemen, again, two different times, is that God will overcome the nations. These, these horses and horsemen, they're, they're riding and they're, they're watching against those evil nations that have been fighting against God's people, okay? Vision one, vision eight, four groups of colored horses whose purpose is to go throughout the whole earth. God will overcome the nations, then, again, think of kind of an X and kind of moving toward the middle and then kind of parallel back out. Visions 2 and 3, so this is the middle of chapter 1 and then chapter 2, and then visions 6 and 7, which are chapter 5, 1 through 4, and chapter 5, 5 through 11. They have to do with obstacles that God's people are facing as they work to restore and rebuild uh, their community and temple. Um, and what we need to know there is that visions two and three, obstacles are from uh, without, in other words, external things. And then uh, visions six and seven, those obstacles there in chapter five are from within. So the point is God's going to overcome external uh, opposition and internal opposition. And as you're moving again toward the burger, toward the meat, those internal oppositions are, we, we could just simply kind of summarize them as sinful things, things God's people are doing wrong, okay? But you get to the center, finally. So visions four and five, and this is chapter three and chapter four of Zechariah. And it's the centerpiece of these eight visions. And again, what the author's doing is kind of getting to that, and then those other visions, again, parallel back out. So again, think, think, think of the burger. I'll just put it back up there. You're old enough to look at that and stay focused with me. The centerpiece there, the meat of the visions are chapters three and chapter four, visions four and five, okay? And these deal especially with Joshua, the high priest, not Joshua from like after the time of Moses, Joshua, but Joshua, the high priest, who's now boots on the ground there representing God's people as the temple's being rebuilt, and Zerubbabel, the mayor. So they deal with Joshua and Zerubbabel and their leadership, both in the building of the temple and for leading God's community, but really getting into the nitty-gritty of the grass-fed, pink in the middle, just perfectly good. Am I making you hungry? Meat right there, right? What, what is being communicated is that God is going to overcome sin, and God is going to overcome weakness. So again, just for a second, you have these first visions, at the end, first and at the end, which deal with external threats and the nations, but really what God continually cares about is dealing with our sin, and God is going to do it. God is going to overcome our sin. God is going to overcome our weaknesses. So I want to spend the time we have on these two visions, vision four and vision five. So go ahead and turn to chapter three of Zechariah. No more hamburger to look at. Zechariah three, one to 10. This is the fourth vision. 
And again, the heading in my Bible, for example, says, A Vision of Joshua the High Priest. Now, probably, if you're familiar with any of the visions, this is the one. This is the one that most people might be familiar with. And I want to read all 10 verses, and then we'll comment on it. So chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree." This vision is about God overcoming our sin. And there's all sorts of, again, imagery happening in this uh, vision. And let me just highlight a few things. Notice right up front there in verse 1 and 2 that Satan is present. Uh, this is reminiscent of Job, the story of Job. If you know the book of Job, you have this scene in heaven where Satan is before God, and there's conversation going on, and, and we sort of have this here. There's, it's almost like a court context, but what, what I want you to note is, is, is the name Satan. Now, my Bible helps a little bit. Most of us know that. Okay, that's the enemy, the devil, okay? But, but literally, the word, and so again, my Bible has a little footnote directing me that in, in verse 1, Satan, it says, in Hebrew, it means the accuser or adversary. And he's standing there at the right of Joshua the high priest to accuse him. Notice that. So it's the play on the words, the noun and the verb. The accuser is right there ready to accuse. What's fascinating is in this glimpse that we get into the heavenly realm, Satan doesn't even get to talk. He's there God reveals to Zechariah why he's there, but he doesn't even get a word in. Verse 2, the Lord said to the accuser, Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
And then he, he goes on to talk about Joshua being the one that God chose, this, this one plucked from the fire. It's important that we remember that Satan is what his name means, the accuser. I think we probably a lot of times, maybe more times, just kind of generically, we think of him as the tempter or tempted by Satan to sin, to disobey, to leave God. And, and that's true. But his name doesn't mean tempter, although he does that. His name means accuser. And right here, we, we get a picture of what he does. He accuses I remember in high school, I've told this story before, I had a little 1976 Honda Civic, okay? If, if anyone can remember cars back then, they, they used a fuel called regular, leaded. So not unleaded, you know, cheap unleaded, medium unleaded, expensive unleaded like we see today, or diesel, but regular, leaded gasoline. Uh, and so that's what this little Honda uh, took. And so, uh, again, this is long before cell phones and any of those kind of devices uh, in the mid-80s. So I get a phone call one day, and it's the Katati police calling for me. And I, I, don't, I think my parents were still working, so I answered. And, and they said, yeah, we're looking for, for the driver of this car. And yeah, that's me. Uh, yeah, um, you stole some gas from this gasoline station right there on, on East Katati, um, right down from Zone Music. I, I can picture where it is. Uh, what? Yeah, the owner of the gas station said that you, you came in and you, you didn't pay. Of course, this is, again, the days where you could, like, start fueling before you swipe and do anything, and then you go in to pay. And, and, and they say you stole. And, and so I hung up at that point because I'm thinking Alden or somebody is messing with me um, uh, and, and so on. The phone rings again, and I realize, no, this really is the Katati police, and, and they are serious, and... Uh, this is one of those moments, I, I'm typically not like, like smart on, on my toes. It takes me a while like to always look back and go, oh, I should have said this. But, but they said, yeah, you stole X amount dollars of unleaded gasoline. And then the light bulb went on. I said, no, that's impossible because the car that you're calling about, my little Honda, yeah, yeah, it takes regular leaded fuel. So I would not have stolen unleaded. And so then the officer, you know, okay, okay, you know, and they, that was it. But boy, I was ticked off. So I went down there and uh, drove in and had some words with some worker inside this little gas station. How dare you accuse me of something I didn't do? There's just something about being accused, especially when you know you didn't do anything. Like, I didn't do that. I didn't steal gas. There's plenty of things I've done wrong, but to be accused of something that I didn't do. Satan, he wants to accuse us of things we've done and of things we haven't done. And what's fascinating here, notice in verse three, it says that Joshua is clothed in filthy garments. Well, this is our English Bibles just helping us, you know, be polite. Um, this, this is, these are garments soiled with excrement. I mean, just think how much we hate it when we walk and we step in excrement and just how just, ah, it's horrible, right? And you scrape in the grass and you hose and like those shoes go out of your use for weeks and weeks because no one likes to have excrement on their shoes. Imagine being clothed in excrement, soiled. Yeah, like that's soiled, okay. 
And so, so God is, in this vision, giving us a glimpse into Satan who wants to accuse Joshua of some things. God doesn't let him, but, but he, he, he is dirty. He, as a high priest, he shouldn't be uh, like that. But it goes on to say, verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove those filthy garments from him. From him. And he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. God has, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so we have this, this picture that, that Joshua gets garments that are suited for him to wear as, uh, as a high priest, as someone who is, in fact, before God in God's presence. And so we, we have these, these pictures going on where we, we do wrong and we fall short and, and what does Satan want to do? He wants to accuse us. He wants us to think, oh, you know, you, you Christian, you, you say you believe, but why'd you do that? You, you know, how, how dare you, you know, live away the way you're living and not live the way God wants you to or, and so forth. I, I was reminded of this quote, again, by Martin Luther. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, and he'll accuse us that our sins deserve death and hell, what should we do? We ought to say this to him. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. So you will be accused by the devil. And we need to remind ourselves and the devil that we, we have one who has in fact taken our place. And so in this, this scene here, again, we're, we're to see ourselves as those that are defiled and unfit. But God, by his grace, he justifies us. He says, yes, you're filth, you're, you're, you're dirty, but, but I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to take one who is clean and who knew no sin, and, and he will take on your sin, and you will take on his righteousness. And this is a picture here in Zechariah of that imputation of the righteousness of Christ in our place. And then there's this mention in verse 8 of the branch, not, not Poppy's friend branch, but the branch. Um, and this is a reference from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, to the Messiah, to Jesus. Joshua would be clean because of the branch, the one who would come. All this would be God's doing. Now, I love this. Um, Ian Dugid, he's a, a commentator, he says this. Everything Joshua received would be enabled by Jesus making the opposite move. Hear this. In place of Joshua's clean turban, Jesus was crowned with thorns. Instead of Joshua's festal garments that he's given, Jesus was stripped of his clothing, which was then divided among his crucifiers. Joshua was found not guilty of defilement. That was really his. And Jesus was found guilty, and he was crucified. For the sin of others. This is the wonder of the gospel. The cross is the means by which God, verse 9, will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day, right? It's, it's done. So, what a glorious, glorious picture we have. 
God will overcome our sin. And he gives us this picture. The next vision in chapter four, vision five, not only will God overcome our sin, but God will overcome our weakness. So just two verses, I need to just kind of jump to them because of time. But you'll know chapter four, verse six. Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Do you know that verse? Have you heard that verse? Yes and amen. Not by might. This rebuilding that you're doing, Zerubbabel, mayor, you're discouraged. It's kind of the context of the vision. He says, it's not going to be by your might and your strength. Again, it's slow going. You just have your hands, right? Big bulldozers haven't been made yet. It's going to be slow, but it's not going to be by your own power or your might, but it's going to be by my spirit. And then jump to verse 10. I, I haven't, hadn't known this verse until studying Zechariah. Verse 10 says, for whoever has despise the day of small things, shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And in other words, see, they, they felt like what they were doing was just so small, small things. Even the foundation and the temple that they would build, it was nothing like the temple of Solomon. And it would be nothing like the temple that Herod would end up building it felt like small things. Like, does this even matter? All we've got is a foundation and it's been 20 years and a wall. And God says, it's, it's not by your might or your power, it's by my spirit. And if you've, if you've despised the day of small things, um, don't, because there's gonna come a day when you'll rejoice. Eventually, the, the plumb line, the, the square, the, the true tools will come out and that final Stone will be in and, and, and you'll see what was done. So even if it's slow, don't, don't despise. It doesn't have to be done, you know, in a week, in a month, in a year. Like don't despise slow, small things. Just be faithful. And that, like I said, this, this verse has encouraged me this week because so many things in life can feel like small things. You know, whether it's stuff in your family, stuff you've been trying to see happen and changes and are we making any progress? Or, or, or as a church, are we growing closer to Christ? Are we becoming more holy? Are, we, are people coming to Jesus? Just be faithful, and there will come a day. Don't, don't despise small things. Big doesn't mean it's of God necessarily, but, but do and work. And, and God, as the heading there says, he will overcome weakness by his spirit and there will come that day when you rejoice. It's a wonderful picture there in the middle of these eight visions, this, these truths. That yes, God is concerned with the nations, the first visions, first and eighth, and then the middle two and the, or two and three and uh, five and six, he's gonna make sure external things are dealt with. But then in the middle, he's, he's gonna overcome sin, the most important thing, and overcome weakness, and, and we need to hear that that message too. We don't we don't have time to look at the the sermon in the middle of the book, and then the final oracles. Um, we we could spend a semester uh, going through Zerubbabel. It is just huge, and there's so much to it. And I'll leave that uh, for you uh, another time. But this 
these two points from these two visions. Hear these today for you, for me. God will overcome our sin. He has through Jesus. What, what is going on there in Zechariah 3 is a picture of what he does through, through the gospel, as we've made clear. So God is the one to overcome sin. And where you feel weak, where you're struggling, where you feel like you're not making progress, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. Return to him. Back to chapter 1, verse 2. Return to him. Today, return to him. Return to him. Return to the branch. I said that Zechariah gets quoted quite a bit and alluded to quite a bit. Well, the one who allows us to have, in whose uh, our sin is dealt with, Jesus, the branch, well, Zechariah 9, 9, you'll know this verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt on a, the foal of a donkey. And that, of course, was quoted in Matthew 21 and also in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, this was a fulfillment as he rode that donkey of this verse here in Zechariah 9, 9. And then Zechariah 13, verse 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. See, this, this God dealing with our sin, it gets dealt with at the heart of the visions, and it comes up again in these oracles. God is going to open a fountain and in a day, in an instant, deal with sin. No longer is it going to be the continual sacrificing year after year after year, but it's going to be done in a day. And of course, that's what happened eventually in Jesus as he went to the cross for us. And so 1 John 2 says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if you do, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. And then verse two, he is the propitiation, big fancy word that means the one who took God's wrath, the one whose blood was the fountain that Zechariah 13.1 spoke of, that was opened in a day. He is the propitiation, the one who took God's wrath for our sins. Not for ours, but for all of the sins of the whole world. And so that brings us today on this second Sunday of Advent, but on this first Sunday of December to our time as a church to have communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, it's a good time to remember. Again, he came, his first advent, he's coming again, but he came that first time to live the life we can't live and then to die that death in our place, to take our filth instead of us taking the filth and, and for him to be that propitiation. And so communion or the Lord's Supper is that reminder for us. And so if Beth and Jim uh, would uh, distribute the the cups. I think today is our final time with uh, rip and sips, uh, COVID cups. So we will we will beginning in 2023, go back to the way it was prior to the pandemic. But take one of these for now, and as is our tradition, we we eat and drink together.
And so while that's coming to you, let me remind you of what our instructions are as a church. These come to us from the Apostle Paul, I mean Jesus, but he spoke these words to the Apostle Paul and he wrote them, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it. He broke bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, that fountain that was opened once and for all on one day. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So would you pray with me and then we will eat and drink together. So Father, thank you for a few minutes in Zechariah and and this minor prophet that has so much to it and we just have scratched the service, but thank you for what we find uh, in chapter three and chapters nine and 13 and throughout that you are the one that deals with our sin, the most important problem. Yes, there's external things and, and whatnot, but we need our sin dealt with. And you gave Zechariah this picture and we have it too of you making us clean not by our might or power, but by your spirit at work. You help us in our weakness and thank you that we could reflect on these. And I pray that now as we remember what ultimately came from your first advent, Jesus, as you went to the cross in our place, uh, you, you rose as well on the third day. And again, we simply are recipients of that grace. We thank you. So nourish us, I pray, through this meal. May it strengthen our faith to return again, to repent. And again today, we we belong to you. To say that, to mean that, to live that. And when we fall short, to confess and remember our advocate before the Father. We don't have to worry about the accuser because no, we've got an advocate who says, no, I've dealt with that one. I've dealt with that one. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.